Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last episode, discussing what the country might look like post-COVID-19, everything from childcare to remote working and how our travelling plans might change. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or as always, you can go to the Go Loud app. Well, coming up today, we'll be discussing how teenagers and young people are impacted from the pandemic. Everything from dealing with the restrictions to education and the pressure on family life. Well, joining me on the programme first is the child and adolescent psychotherapist, Coleman Nocter. Coleman, just outline for us what kind of difficulties young people are currently facing. I think it's, I think it's big, to be honest with you. And I, um, I suppose the longer it goes on, the more of a bigger deal it seems. Um, I think the first week or two, there was maybe a bit of a novelty about the whole restrictions and no school. But certainly from the anecdotally that what I've seen from the evidence outside is that the last week or two now, um, I think that novelty has well worn off. And I think... I think people are struggling. I think what children's worries are are different to those of adults. They're maybe not so concerned about, you know, the surge and the peak and flattening curves, but what what they're concerned about is is a lot about their how their lives have changed. So will my football ever come back again? And you know, we were winning the league in our basketball and that's all stopped and when will I see my friends and and so it's a bit more parochial. Their concerns seem to be much more about their life, but they perhaps don't feel able to maybe discuss that or bring that up because, again, their families are maybe worrying about bigger issues, you know, um, mm. in terms of lots of families who who have lost jobs and, and, and huge stresses and, and, you know, the children's dance classes on a Thursday night might seem a little fickle to them. But to children, they're big deals. Um, and let's not forget, they went to school on a Thursday and came home and were told they weren't going back on Friday and everything was kind of taken very abruptly from them and and it's a loss they're experiencing yeah. a grief in that and uh, uh and yeah it's it, it is a big deal and and again i think across the board from despite just children i think a lot of what we would suggest people do when they're feeling a bit lost or disconnected is spend time with friends you know socialize have some structure feel productive a lot of those things are, are are not available to us at the moment. So a lot of the things we would lean on to maintain our mental well-being are not available to us. And so this is a fairly mentally unhealthy environment we're trying to manage at the moment amidst a kind of a, a, a crisis of anxiety. So, yeah, circumstances are not ideal. And, and certainly from my experience, people are struggling out there yeah. um, and probably more in the in the last week or two than than in week one or two, which was a little bit of a false dawn, I think. Okay, there's a couple of different um, points there, Coleman, I just want to, to pick up on, because I know from hearing from um, parents and even parents of very young children and parents of older kids that, you know, they have a lot of concerns now, because as, as you mentioned, you know, initially at the start of this, we're at the end really of, week five at this process and at the start of this there was an element of kind of novelty to it the kids were off school it was a little bit like an early or an extended Easter holiday but what does that level of uncertainty do to children as to they don't know whether or not they will be back to school in September will they be back before the end of the term that kind of thing I mean what does uncertainty do to children of both a kind of a young age at primary school level and then even at secondary too? Well, I suppose if we look at what anxiety is, by definition, it is a fear of the unknown. So 
when there's uncertainty, there's going to be anxiety. Now, how people manage anxiety might be very different. So some might be very quiet about it and not try and, you know, try and ignore the fact and, and try and cope and get on with things, whereas others might be a little bit more verbal about it. And like, we, we obviously want children to be vigilant and we want them to manage social distancing and clean their uh, hands and, and, and cough in their, in, in, the, in their arms and things like that. But we don't want them overly vigilant where they're staying, staying awake at night, worrying about the, the pandemic issues. So the, 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 every child is different, so they'll react differently to it. But um, just because a child isn't maybe obviously anxious about it doesn't mean that they are not uncertain about it because we're all uncertain. This, there's no one immune to the anxiety of the pandemic. We all, none of us have the answers as to when this will be over and how the reintegration is going to go. And it's, it's hard for children because they're used to a very black and white world where things are very certain and they're, they, they're, they work off structures and rules and, and certainty very much. So this is, this is new for them. Um, and I think they are struggling. I think they're doing a wonderful job. I mean, I, I think a lot of kids, we should have an applaud for, for children who are managing this quite well. You know, I, I'm impressed by a, a lot of children and how they've managed the, the, the disruption so far. But that's not to say that they're not struggling on some level. And, and I do think they need a bit of support around that. And, and they're anxious and parents and families are anxious. So they're going to pick up on that and that anxiety within the home as well. Atmospheres, children are not immune to atmospheres. And, uh, and I think the more pressure parents are under to kind of homeschool and work for home and, and do all these things and try and get everything perfectly done and keep curriculum up. And, you know, there's, there's huge stresses in families. And, and then I think children, they will bear the, the, the brunt of that a little bit or they'll certainly, um, they certainly will experience it. And, and again, we need to, all of us will oscillate between coping and not coping through this. Um, but we, it's a bit like the, the life jacket thing. We need to manage ourselves first and then try and contain our children and, and contain their anxieties when we're in a good place as opposed to when we're struggling ourselves. That idea that you talked about um, children are nearly going through a level of grief here because of the sudden change and the impact that this has kind of had on, on their daily lives. Is that something just I'm trying to think of as a, you know, a piece of advice that parents could maybe take away from this discussion today, Coleman? Is that how parents should maybe look at this? I think it's about um, not giving false promises because I, I think that like, we don't know when this is going to be over and we don't know what the reintegration or the pace of that is going to be like. But you do need to ensure that children know this will pass and that, you know, as a family unit, you've got this. And I, I really think if there is going to be one good thing that comes out of this, it will be the collective. We, we've come, we've got a very team mentality about this being in this together Everyone has to, you know, together we're stronger and we'll get through it together. And I think children, if they feel that culture within the family, that the adults in the room are kind of saying, we've got this, you know, this is OK, we're going to manage this. And, and no, matter what, no matter what gets thrown up at us, we'll, we'll negotiate it and we'll cope. Um, rather than saying, look, we'll, you'll be back on the 5th of May or whatever it might be mm-hmm. or when these are lifted. I think the, the more false dawns, the less trust children will have in it. So I'd avoid getting into trying to provide certainty in a time of uncertainty. But I would, what they should be certain of is your presence, your support, and that you're in it together, and whatever comes up, you'll manage it. Um, and again, the age of the child will determine how much information they need. I tend to be more selling the positive sides of the news stories about you know people coming out and supporting each yeah. other and all these kind of things uh, for younger children. And then maybe as they're older, they can kind of get exposed to that. But children will have kind of funny beliefs around this. And I can tell you from my own experience, my my own children were saying, you know, when will granddad die? You know, because they're hearing that all old people are dying. And so there's a kind of a, 
there's a lot of creases in their understanding that parents need to iron out and that's why we need to be having conversations with them even if they're not asking we need to be checking in how they understand this to be how they're coping and 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 how they'll survive um and so you know it is it is about being a source of reliable information for them and and not having them sensationalize it on their own uh, so again it get back gets back to the communication issue be approachable but but be safe and have and, and, and it's, it's an unusual thing to say in an, in a pandemic. But you know, if they get the message that we've got this, you know, um, I think that's probably yeah, okay. a good psychological message to give them. What's your advice to parents, um, Coleman? First of all, maybe a very young kids in terms of telling them about the virus? Like I've heard sort of, you know, a- anecdotes of um, older people who are maybe cocooning at the moment, talking about their grandkids saying that they're living in a raccoon and, you know, children not sleeping at night because they're scared the virus is going to get them and this kind of thing. Like, I mean, how much should parents tell very young kids? I think when you're telling young kids, you're trying to reassure them of what we can control. So what we're doing is we're staying inside because it's for a greater good you know we nothing bad has happened we're trying to prevent something bad from happening and i think that's an important message that they get that this is uh, there's a kind of a, a social responsibility to it but also from the point of view of that if they do wash their hands if they do mind themselves there's nothing to be worried about that we there are elements of this that we can control and the reason we're enduring all of this is so that we're all going to be okay so it's again trying to sell that positive message i wouldn't be concentrating too much on certainly wouldn't be concentrating on surges and death rates and icu beds and all that sort of stuff which is everywhere in the media there's no alternative news story at the moment and and children are not immune to that they listen to radios they get the background information mm. and again it's just trying to dilute their exposure to that and really trying i would be selling the real positive messages showing them the clips of the people out clapping on the frontline workers, showing them the clips of, of the nurses doing the, the TikTok dances. Yeah. And exa- and so, so that they get that reassurance that the doom, gloom and grim is but one side of it. And it's really trying to protect the innocence of childhood so that they're not overwhelmed and overexposed. Um, you want them to be vigilant, but you don't want them to be overwhelmed. And so you would taper that. And a, and a child who has a proclivity for anxiety obviously would give them a much more diluted version than perhaps a child who's a little bit more robust about that. Do you know what I mean? So uh, the biggest myth out there is that there's one way to parent. There's not. You, know, you have to parent different children in different ways and, and work with their temperaments. But um, I think from the point of view of less is more when it comes to the grim and melancholic details and more is more when it comes to the hope and, and positivity of of when this is going to finish. Do you know, things like having the news on, the radio on in the background, maybe very more particularly around young children. I mean, is that something that you should do, or should should parents try to maybe reduce the level of news content or discussion in the household around the dinner table? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it can't be just about you know. I, I, my own kids, I changed the channel there about a week ago and they're going, oh, not more COVID-19. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's, um, uh, you kind of have, they'll, they'll oftentimes double check you in that. And you know, we all have to be careful. We're scrolling, you know, social media, we're getting, you know, the, the, the panic stuff is going to spread around much quicker than the, the, the steady stuff. And um, as, a, as a, a well-being message for ourselves, we've got to keep in check about how much exposure of that that we're getting. Um, and, and, you know, dilute the exposure with a bit of Netflix and a bit of comedy and a bit of other things as well because you can become consumed by it and we need to be careful about that. 
What about the slightly older children, um, maybe at kind of teenage level, Coleman? Because obviously sometimes, I mean, t- teenagers can face their own problems on a, a daily and a weekly basis, as we all know, um, regardless of a, a pandemic like this. But what would your advice to parents be? It's a different challenge. Again, I, I think the issue around this social isolation and quarantine is more difficult for Teenagers, I think they probably would be more assertive in telling you what they want to do and, and they want to meet their friends. And they're getting a very skewed message. I mean, for the last few years, we've told them, get off your devices and go outside. And now we're telling them, don't go outside and go back on your devices. And, you know, mm. we have to own that a little bit, that this is new information for them. I, when it comes to teenagers, I think it's about acknowledging that this is difficult for them. You know, the less you listen, the more they'll shout. So you can still say, look, this is really difficult. And I guess you know, you've got leaving cert students and all those different things with different sort of disruptions that they're trying to cope with and it's important to acknowledge the distress of that without colluding with what they want to do so it's not about letting them out and meeting up in crowds and crews to make them feel better but it is about saying I know this is what you want but I'm going to give you what you need and what you need to do is stay in at the moment and, and persevere this but I appreciate that that's difficult and I acknowledge that and uh, and again trying to sell the social responsibility thing to teenagers I think is the best way to, to sell the isolation piece, the, there's nothing teenagers like better than a bit of a cause. And from the point of view of if we can buy into that um, and get them to buy into it with us, um, I think the social responsibility may be a motivator. But um, this is difficult for them. They, the, this is their, their friends and their connections and their life and their structure is, is something they, again, would lean hev- heavily on. And a lot of the things they would need and use to cope uh, have been taken from them and it's about acknowledging the distress. And again, everyone's distress is relative to their own experience. Um, you know, for people who, who have lo- lost loved ones, obviously huge, losing jobs, huge. But if someone who just really misses watching sports, that's OK for them to be to feel a bit disenfranchised by that or a bit sad about that or, or for teenagers who, who don't get to, to do the leaving cert on time. And it's important not to dismiss everyone's worries because we're, they're all relative to our own experience. And. Is it a case the parents need to just sort of bite their tongue a little bit more maybe now around with the teenagers, especially the people that should have been sitting the leaving cert at this stage? Yeah, I think I think you can be supportively firm. Do you know what I mean? That you have to be firm in, in keeping the rules and not colluding with their own desire. But you can support them in the disgruntlement. Do you know what I mean? If somebody says, you know, I, I really want to go out and see my friends, I miss them so much, you can connect to that missing them and you know and and sit with that and support them with that feeling but it doesn't mean you have to let them go out and meet their friends uh, and and you know flaunt with the rules of of social distancing etc it is just about it's it's about being supportive whilst being firm at the same time um and that's a difficult balance to manage but um you know we we do need to give them what they need as opposed to what they want and that thing of you know um, the Zoom calls, the online, the FaceTimes, the WhatsApps, all this sort of stuff on online and computers and on the phones, you know, in, in order to allow um, teenagers and young people to kind of still have that interaction with their friends because it is so important and we, we all need that little bit of a lift and to talk and to see people. Is that something that maybe parents should, you know, I know we talk so much about screen time and the effect, the negative effects of screen time, but is it now time for parents to say, well, look, we're going to set an hour aside on the iPad or the laptop or the phone on a Friday night and you can chat to, you know, your friends or your pals or whatever it is. 
Yeah, I mean, it's never been a case of bad technology. It's always been a case of us using it badly. And what we're learning through this process is a good use of technology, how we can use it to enhance our communication and our strategies in times when we're limited. And, and that, is, of course, that's to be encouraged. This is uh, it's time well spent on technology rather than uh, poorly timing, spending time on it. You know, spending an hour chatting to your friends on Zoom, if you haven't seen all week, is a really nourishing and psychologically healthy thing to do, whereas spending an hour on Instagram going through somebody's profiles and feeling miserable about yourself is not a good use of technology. So the idea is that hopefully when we come out of this, there will be some learnings in terms of how we can make technology use work for us as opposed to us maybe being led by technology as much as we had been. Again, this is a really unusual. We've always said, you know, we need time out, we need to take some time back, and we've been a time-poor society. But just the nature of this has been that the dial has flipped completely in the other direction, and there's almost too much time at, in, in, at the moment. Um, but the dial will find its level, and hopefully we'll, we'll find a way back into the middle, which is obviously where we need to be most of the time. In terms of things like a little bit of routine, um, I was reading in some of the British papers last week, Coleman as well, about you know people that are working from home at the moment, when they get up and go down to sit at the kitchen table maybe at 10 in the morning, that they should even just walk around their house twice just to create that and introduce that element of commute to work to try and keep that bit of routine. Is that something the kids need to do? Yeah, I mean, the work-life membrane is very loose at the moment in terms of we are now working in our homes. And I, I do, I'm not so sure we're all working from home. We're maybe, maybe parenting from work, if that makes sense. You know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's different. You know, it, it, if I had to take my children into my office into, to work every day and try and do my job, I would find it very difficult. It's not the location. It's trying to do two tasks at once. That's the problem. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think we need to give ourselves a break around that. That, 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 that multitasking is... is is really difficult and really hard to do um, and then throw in a school curriculum and homeschooling and all that on top of it. I really think we, we need to realise that we can't do all these things and give ourselves a break, drop the expectations. You know, it's much better that our children are contained and happy rather than overscheduled and they're not going to benefit from us pulling our hair out from the stress of trying to spin 17 plates at once um, that's only going to add to the anxiety in the home so you do what you can and, and I don't think you have to do any more than that and I think as parents and, and everything else the, the more perfect we want to get it the more stressed we're going to mm. be and I just think relax um, your children's educational future is not going to be determined by whether you did an hour or an hour and a half every day at home um, you know this the the this will all re- recalibrate when things go back to normal. But for the time being, a bit of structure is good, you know, having a difference from the morning, from the evening and the afternoon. And, and kids thrive on structure, but uh, a structure that's flexible to respond to where they're at at the time. This is, these are extraordinary times and we need to be able to be able to respond to that. And, and look, the working from home thing is, is, is difficult for different people. Um, and especially if you're on your own at home with small kids and trying to, you know, do a Zoom meeting about work and, you know, there's people crying for Cocoa Pops at the same time. It's it's a challenge and I think people need to, again, drop the expectations of ourselves around that and just try and do what we can. Just finally, Coleman, for people, parents, maybe out there looking for a little bit more advice on this, um, questions and queries that they might have, where would you direct them to? I, I don't think anyone has been through this before, Andrea. That's the thing. You know, all of, the, all of us as psychotherapists, psychologists who are giving advice, we're firefighting and we're trying to find out what best way to manage it. And um, I don't think overloading ourselves with information is, is all that helpful. I would say to you, manage your expectations of how to get through this. And sometimes we just have to survive and we're in survival mode. 
Um, don't be expecting to be thriving at this point. Try and keep your children and your lines of communication open. Use the home as a culture of safety, that you're trying to create a culture of safety within the home as much as you can. That doesn't mean you have to be having fun all the time. It just means that everyone is in this together. And really sell that culture of, of togetherness and together we're stronger and really bring that team back into the family unit again. Um, and I think that's the best thing you can do. Again, I, I wouldn't overload myself with information, but there are numerous podcasts and things that are, are available that people can listen into. I know there's a, a You're OK podcast and things going on. So make sure you're looking at reliable sources and less of the perhaps WhatsApp group stuff where my parents' cousin is knowing that there's something happening down the line and, and rely okay. more on, on what you can trust. But I would just say to parents, you know, be aware that when this is finished, the reintegration of children back to the structure is going to be a challenge. And um, not to forego any more doom, but we need to be thinking about children who have gone to childminders, crashes and things like that, who are now at home with mom and dad all the time. They're going to have to be going back to that. And we need to be kind of yeah, keeping point. that in mind while we do it, because they can get comfortable with new norms as well. And... Uh, Again, probably a conversation for a few weeks down the line, hopefully. Absolutely. But, um, well, hopefully. Hopefully in a few well, weeks' hopefully, time, Colin. Hopefully. Look, everyone's doing enough and give yourselves a break. And this is unprecedented and it's tough. Mm. And just do what you can. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Colman Nocter, child and adolescent psychotherapist. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. On the programme today, we're continuing our discussion, asking how young people are impacted and dealing with the coronavirus restrictions. Now, we're joined in the line by John Walsh, who's an education journalist with the INM and also former advisor to Rory Quinn when he was the education minister. Um, first of all, John, my thanks to you for taking the call today. Just want to ask you about the impact that all of this is likely having on um, students and I suppose really Really in particular, for instance, the likes of secondary school students. I mean, even anecdotally from speaking to people, what sort of impact is it having? Well, it's having a huge impact. Because if, if we, when we realise that we have 4,000 schools and colleges and universities in this country and they're all shut, so you, you have well over a million students at home. So that has a huge impact nationally on, on the students themselves, but also on their parents and on working arrangements and so forth. So it's, it's having a massive impact nationally. Um, it's also having an impact, obviously, on teachers who are trying to do their best in difficult circumstances to continue the teaching and learning process that, that normally goes on in schools. Uh, many of them have responded magnificently with very good lessons online, but many of them are hampered by their students not having proper or decent access to broadband. So th- that's a big di- difficulty, particularly for disadvantaged students. They're suffering much more than students uh, who have good access uh, to, to, uh, to lots, lots of various digital platforms and can readily use their, their online platforms all the time. Mm. And is, is that just in terms of, I suppose, socioeconomic, geographical considerations? Is that why that there will be some sort of a differential between there how is, people there, might we, be? Yeah, yeah there, there is. Yes. We've talked about the digital divide. I think this crisis has shown up how, how serious that is. Um, and I think consideration will have to be given to disadvantaged students uh, when it comes to the actual marking of the exams. Uh, the Leaving Certificate we're talking about is the junior certificate um, has, has, has been 
cancelled in effect and is now going to be replaced by um, school-based assessments of some sort. And in, in terms of what's happening at the moment, I suppose we might start with the, the very pressing issue, John, of the Leaving Cert and Leaving Cert students. I mean, they've had some clarity in, in recent days um, around the fact that the Leaving Cert will not take place at the usual start date in early June, now likely at the end of July and, and early August. I mean, is it? do you think has the response to this been satisfactory? Um, I, I think students were clamouring and their parents actually were clamouring for some sort of clarity about whether the exams would be held at all. Um, or whether they would be replaced by some other method of assessment. The, the notion of predicted grades was was aired on a few occasions and had received some support from students in a very big survey conducted by the Irish Second Level Students' Union. But there were immense practical, practical difficulties with that. Um, there was a lot of political pressure and public pressure for clarity, um, and indeed the media has, has, has highlighted the need for clarity as well. So the students and their families have a lot of clarity in terms of what's actually happening. Um, but they need a lot more um, in the Department of Education and the, the State Examinations Commission are working on that. And they need more in terms of just the, the, the practical details about what, how the exams will be run, uh, what, what will the social distancing arrangements be made because unfortunately that virus is not going to disappear overnight and will still be lingering we assume unfortunately in July, August Um, so some arrangements new arrangements will obviously have to be made uh, to ensure that no student is in any danger uh, to their health when they're taking the exams and then you'll have conditions that'll have to be considered, you know, students who have who have health issues, will they, what arrangements will be made for them? These all issues have yet to be teased out and announced to the students and their parents. And, look, John, how difficult is this going to be to, to, to do this? I mean, I would have just assumed that each individual school, if they're holding the Leaving Cert, for instance, in late July or early August, each individual school could separate, you know, maybe have 10 students in a classroom draft in the teachers that are currently on leave to supervise the the um the actual exam being sat in the classrooms and space students out that way i mean is that the kind of thing we're talking about well, well if you think about it i mean the, the minister has i think rightly uh, given a guarantee or an assurance as far as i can that that students will be back in class for face to face time with their teachers and they need it um, and they haven't seen their teachers since the middle of March. So they need that face-to-face time with their teachers to catch up, to be reinvigorated about their studies, to be, get their confidence back again. Uh, those who, who have who have lost that contact and indeed lost their confidence about their, their exam capabilities. So the, the intention is that they will be back in classes for two weeks before the exams. But they can't, you can't have 25 or 30 students in one class so they'll obviously have to be smaller classes and they'll be spread around school buildings. So teachers will, will take other classes that they might not normally take because all the concentration is on the Leaving Certificate students. So I think, it'll, and the teachers have, have literally donned the green jersey and have indicated that they are more than willing to assist their students in this really vital hour of their need. Um, so the, the, the teachers and the students will be back hopefully two weeks before the exams start and then when the exams start themselves and normally after the first paper students are all chattering together naturally to say well how did you get on you know, how do you put your answers to that but there'll have to be social distancing requirements 
uh, implemented. So they can't they can't just all leave the exam hall together. Um, they'll have to be separated to ensure they don't congregate and um, pass on the infection. Mm-hmm. And, so and there will be a lot of logistics yet to be worked out. Oh, absolutely. And and I know there's been this point has been made previously as well, and particularly I've heard a lot of secondary school students themselves talking about the fact that why can't they just work off these um, predicted grades or you know, grades as sort of an average grade over the course of the student's lifetime or over the course of the student's perhaps previous, you know, fifth and sixth year in school or maybe their sixth year. But I, I would think that, I mean, I know certainly I was the kind of person, John, who worked better under pressure. My my mocks and Christmas results wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been reflective of my actual result, you know, and I'm sure that's probably the case for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, it is, of course. And a lot would, would, would not have been happy with predicted grades and I'm sure would consider legal challenges if they got predicted grades that they felt didn't reflect how well they would do in the living certificates. Um, it would have been quite complex to, to organise predicted grades and so there's no, you'd have to get the cooperation of the teachers and the teachers would be, would be under a lot of pressure obviously, locally. That's what they fear to give a good predicted grade for so-and-so and so-and-so. So there are a lot, a lot of concerns about the potential use of predicted grades. Now we hope it won't come down to that or some variation of it if for some reason the leave certificate cannot go ahead in July or August. What What is the likelihood of there being legal challenges if they were to go ahead with the predicted grades, John? Um, well, I suppose one way maybe to avoid it would be to get students to opt in to an arrangement where predicted grades would be used. Um, but that's... Uh, obviously... As of now, predictor grades will not be used, so that doesn't arise. But I think uh, if they were used, there would certainly have been challenges to to their use. And similarly, if some other arrangements, such as the results of house exams and mocks were used, um, just those two alone, again, I think there would be challenges to it. We can be certain that no matter what arrangement we come to, and it looks like they will be run in, in August in particular, the Leaving Certificate exams, that there will be a huge volume of appeals this year um, because of the circumstances that students are taking the exam under. That could have an impact on the process of enrolling in college. I've heard some suggestion, John, as well, that when markers or examiners are marking exam papers that you know they will take all of this into account. I mean, I just wonder in terms of the marking process, how do you take something like this into account? I would have thought, you know, the answer is either right or it's wrong. Indeed, yeah. yeah but, um, of course, particularly in maths and, and uh, maths physics and so forth. Um, but in other, in other areas, I think there could be a bit of a flexibility. But you can't go too far. You can't suddenly drop the standard dramatically in one year in if the there are extenuating circumstances, but I think the, I think the markers will be under um, under an indication from the examinations commission. Look, and give people the benefit of the doubt. The other point too, just that you 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 mentioned, John, as well, is that, you know the impact this would have on the likes of third level. Obviously, um, the new students, the new first years, are due to obviously start in in September. The old first years are returning to second year as well in September. What impact is this likely to have now on third level? Well, uh, quite quite a big impact. Uh, the University of Limerick announced during the week that they intend or they hope to reopen lectures for second, third, fourth years and postgrads in September, and that they'll enrol the first years and start them 
towards the end of October. And that seems to be the thinking in other higher education institutions as well. But that's assuming everything goes reasonably well in terms of getting the papers marked in time. The CAO will turn the turn the results around very quickly. He can do it in two or three days. So, I mean, last year they got the results on the Tuesday. Or the students got the results on Tuesday and they had their offers from the CAO on three days later. Um, so I think similarly that, that could even be telescoped more this year. They get them out as quickly as possible, the CAO, with the admissions officers from all the higher education institutions. Um, and I think all the, all the institutions will make determined efforts to get back to uh, normality, if we ever return to that fully, um, as quickly as possible. And just, John, as well, in terms of advice for people that are maybe in that kind of third or fourth or final year of their perhaps their undergrad or whether it be a master's programme, um, in some cases there would be the likes of examinations, the final part of exams that have to be completed or maybe a dissertation that needs to be finalised. Like, What impact would that have on people leaving third level to maybe go into a workplace, a job that they'd previously accepted in February? Well, I, I mean, the, the, all the higher education institutions have collectively come to an agreement about uh, how they'll run the terminal exams. That was announced by Minister Mary Mitchell O'Connor and, and the institutions a couple of weeks ago. So I think that that issue has been la- largely resolved. Now, I'm sure there'll be some people not happy with with the way, with the new arrangement, but that, that that they will they will graduate, not quite as normal, but they will be able to graduate and, and go in hopefully to the workplace. John, can I just ask you as well, maybe for your advice on a on a final point, like for people that have um, students at home now, and and maybe they are just the kind of the 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 first or the second year in secondary school or even in college. What what should people be doing? Like, how much work do people need to do at home now regularly? Um, how do the students themselves? Well, uh, most of them, if not all of them, have uh, have uh, classes online. They're not them, unfortunately. There's only even access to those classes online, um, but I think they can, they can continue on as best they can. Uh, I mean, the people I feel particularly sorry for, apart from this year's batch of leave certificate students, are next year's because they have already missed out, or they will have missed out on three three months schooling. And okay, they've they've caught up with some of it. They catch up with some of it when they go back, but they'll be under a lot of pressure next year to to in effect in in one year catch up on what they've missed out and prepare for for the exams for next year. So the effects of this virus, unfortunately, will be felt by the education system for a long time to come. John Walsh, education journalist and former advisor to Rory Quinn when he was education minister. My thanks to you for joining us here on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're very welcome back to the final part of this week's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today, we're looking at the effect of COVID-19 on young people in terms of how they're dealing with the restrictions, education and also the pressure on families at the minute. Well, joining us on the line is the CEO of SpunOut.ie, Ian Power. Ian, my thanks to you for taking the call this morning. Um, Ian, just provide us with a little bit of insight into the impact um, that young people are currently experiencing as a result of this virus pandemic? Yeah, I guess it, it, it's affecting us all in, in many different ways. But I guess for the younger group of, of people uh, in Ireland and around the world right now, it's, it's something that's just very hard and difficult to process. I mean, it's uncharted territory for, for all of us. But I think certainly if, you, if you've got less life experience, it's, it's obviously more difficult and you've got less resilience built up maybe to 
to understand and cope with something that's this big. So I think I think just like everybody, they're struggling to to come to terms with what's going on and their lives are being disrupted. And, you know, it is really unnatural for them not to be out and about and living their lives and, you know, meeting their friends and doing all of those different things. So the disruption is significant, you know, and I, I think they probably probably what we just have to remember is that you know, there's less perspective, um, you know, there's less kind of resilience built up. And so it is it, it is going to be just naturally more difficult for children and young people. Um, and, and we've seen that in our services and, and the numbers of young people reaching out to us. Give us an insight into what you're hearing at spawnite.ie. Yeah, so since this uh, all began, um, the numbers of young people reaching out to us for advice and information is up about 60%. Um, and then we also run a, a 24-7 helpline as well. And that's, you know, contacts to that are up 44% as well. So it, it's really been a, a very busy time in, in trying to support and hold those young people. And in terms of information, I guess lots of them are looking for information about what's going to happen in the near future. So for many, obviously, and I know you were talking about this earlier in the programme, in terms of the leaving search, like that's a huge stressor at the moment because of the uncertainty around that. And look, that's just natural. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible to to give all of the answers right now in this moment because we don't know how this is, is going to pan out. Um, and so it's just trying to to help um, young people understand how it might pan out and also how to hold themselves in the in the interim when they don't know what exactly is going to happen. Um, we've had lots of, of younger people for whom, you know, they, they've finished the leave and search, but, you know, they've just been in the world of work for a year or two. They, they, they're maybe doing, you know, part-time college or stuff like that. And they've been made, you know, uh, essentially redundant, you know, and, and financial worries are a big um, difficulty for those young people too. So it's 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 not just kind of people in their 20s and 30s and, and older that are worried about work and finances. It's young people too. And you'd be surprised at the number of young people who were in charge of a household as well. So, so there's been uh, cases and issues like that. But on a mental health perspective, um, in terms of the numbers of people getting in touch with our text line, um, anxiety would normally be an issue that we would see at about 25% of our conversations with young people before COVID. Now it's 52%. So anxiety as an issue has doubled for young people um, over the, the period of this crisis. Um, and around a third of texters directly reference, you know, they directly reference coronavirus or, or the word COVID in their conversation with our volunteers. I think what's really interesting is that uh, around much fewer uh, young people are at imminent risk. So normally one in five of our texters is suicidal. And that's still the same, but the numbers of escalations we're making to emergency services is down by 70 or 80%. So that's really interesting to us. I think I think we've spoken to colleagues in the National Suicide Research Foundation and others, others who have kind of explained to us that in a moment of kind of global solidarity or, or whole society, you know, kind of uh, incidents like this, I guess, there, there tends to be a reduction in suicidality in, in, in an immediate sense. And, but we are expecting that, and the experts are telling us that there will be a wave of delayed grief and there will be a, a wave of delayed, you know, kind of trauma from all of this. And, and so we are really getting ready for that. And I think that's one of the things we're trying to, to use this time for as well. So it's a challenging time because you're trying to, you know, respond to the increase in demand that's there right now, but also prepare for what we expect to be an increase, uh, you know, even even more in, in the next weeks and, and months, you know. And is it that is it that young people are looking for 
sort of some reassurance that everybody else is in the same boat as them? Is it that they're concerned about when will normality as we kind of know it um, return to normal? Like what are their sort of the, the key things that they're citing to you? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, so around 48% of our texters get in touch with us because they said they just wanted to talk to somebody that didn't know them. And I think that's really true for right now because, you know, if you think about it, people are in close quarters and you're talking to the same people all day, every day. And, you know, particularly if you may want to talk to somebody about something that maybe you don't want to talk to your parents about or your siblings about, you know, I think one of the issues that young people are talking to us about is, you know, being separated from their their boyfriend or girlfriend um, or partner, you know, and that's really quite difficult at the moment because there's no way for them to be together. There's no way for them to to be able to quarantine together, you know. So uh, that is really difficult for lots of young people to be able to process. And they don't want to necessarily burden the, the their partner by by kind of talking to them about it. Um, one of the things that we're finding is that, you know, young people are reaching out looking for understanding and how to process all of this I think and that reassurance as you say like um, they're, they're looking to just speak to somebody to tell them that it will be you know okay in a way and you know that's not necessarily something that we can do you know our job is to listen and not really give advice on the text line but um, what we find is that particularly late at night we're getting young people who are texting in who are worried and anxious and stressed and I think um, the reason for that is it's the end of the day. It's the time that your thoughts maybe come in on you. It's the time that you're probably alone with your thoughts for the first time in the day. And so really our goal at that point is just to try to de-stress and to, to try to remove um, some of that anxious feeling so that they can just get to sleep as well, you know, because often that's at 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. And we know that sleep is super important for their mental health. Um, and around 50% of the texters say that they get in touch with us because they have no one else to talk to. And what's really interesting to us is that, you know, 65% of texters get in touch with us because um, and, and, uh, and have shared something with us that they've never shared with somebody else before. So um, the, the issues, you know, anxiety, depression, isolation, relationships and suicide, those top five issues have always been our top five issues. But I think there's just a different slant on them given the current um, situation that we're in, you know. And I presume, Ian, then at that point that obviously if, if you are concerned about somebody or you want to give them um, advice, it's it's referral on then to some of the support organisations. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So our goal is to, to listen and to safety plan and to support and hold that young person. So really our, our goal is to de-escalate imminent risk and, and imminent crisis. We're also here to just talk and, and, and to listen, you know, for for anything that's going on it doesn't have to be a a major crisis or anything like that but part of what we do is we signpost to the other services that might be able to provide longer term um, care if needed you know so the likes of Pieta House um, and Jigsaw and other services in the community that can support and they're all running various different adaptive versions of their service through either online or phone um, and they're they're trying to to cater for that need as, as best they can but you know if somebody is uh, at imminent risk, we do escalate uh, the details to the National Ambulance Service and they work to support that texture and keep them safe as well. So there's a, a few different things that we can do in that circumstance, you know. In terms of students, um, people getting ready now, just finding out that they are going to be sitting the Leaving Cert probably at the latter end of July or early in August, still waiting to find out exactly you know, wh- when the exam date will happen. But what sort of additional pressure, Ian, does that you know, provide or, or, or present to students? 
Yeah, I think it's been really difficult because I think obviously it's it's such a formative uh, event in young people's lives in Ireland. And I think the pressure around it is significant even before all of this began. And so therefore the stakes are really high for young people uh, and they are obviously their anxiety levels are matching that, you know. So I think we, we really do have to be a lot more understanding and empathetic towards those young people. I think we have to be very careful about what statements we make about the, the leaving service and the exams coming up, you know, I think um, they're latching on to everything to try to get some sort of idea of what's going to happen and certainty um, and understandably so. So I think we really have to, I think the government has to to think very carefully before it makes statements because, you know, I, I know the minister, for example, was was trying to provide comfort by saying that, you know, he's hoping that everyone would have at least two weeks back in school, you know, but everyone latched onto that immediately as only having two weeks back in school. And that caused a lot of anxiety for young people who maybe haven't finished the curriculum or young people for whom they really rely on their teachers to give them support. Um, And also as well, you know, I think we have to remember there's lots of students out there who are caring for younger siblings, um, you know, while their parents are out working in retail or healthcare. And, you know, they're not necessarily getting the same shake at this. um, And it's not true to say that they have all the time in the world now to be revising, you know. So I think that's that's just something important to remember. Um, and for the students more generally, I think what we're trying to say to them is, you know, look, you can only control what's within your control and, and you can only worry about that, you know. And, and that's really um, what we're trying to, to get across in that try to, you know, do the things that you can that are within your control to, to make yourself feel less anxious and and try not to focus on the bits that you don't know yet because obviously that's just it's a you know you know we don't know how long the the period of uncertainty is going to last because to be fair to everybody nobody knows how this is going to pan out and and so you know really there's there's very little um you know kind of energy to be gained from uh, from worrying about stuff that you can't control and just to try to do as much as you can right now you know within mm. the limits of your experience as I said you know it's not the same for everybody but to to have a routine to be making sure that you're getting a good night's sleep every night to be getting some exercise if you can every day and and trying to do a couple of hours study if that's possible for you and just making sure that I think you have a plan you know I think once you know, you're sat down and and you have some sort of idea about how you're going to approach um, all of this within the chaos of it all, you know, that can steady you a little bit and it can settle you a little bit better than if you just have, uh, you know, don't have an idea of what you're meant to be doing, you know. So I think that that's that's the main advice that we're kind of giving out at the moment and and just to take care of yourself and be Mm -hmm. kind to yourself at the moment as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, we'll leave it there for the moment. My thanks, as always, to the CEO of Spunite.ie, Ian Power, for joining us here on the programme today. If you've missed any of the show, you can download the podcast, as always, on our website at newstalk.com or you can go to the Go Loud app. My thanks to the production team, Stephen Jordan and Simon Keane. I'll be back again with Between the Lines this time next week and with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from six. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 